0: Hello friends and welcome to another episode of A Positive Podcast. I am Raisel Schusterman, your host, and today I'm sharing with you all an interview with Dr. Edith Eger. This past June, Chabad of Peabody and YJP Boston had the distinct honor and privilege of interviewing Dr. Edith Eger, a Holocaust survivor. Dr. Edith Eger is author of the book, The Choice, and it's a transformative read. I really encourage you all to read the book if you haven't yet, buy it, read it, and read it with a pen so you can underline the brilliant wisdom inside. Dr. Eger has recently released her second book, The Gift, which is truly a gift. This interview is full of nuggets of wisdom, inspiration, and lots of information that can help everyone with their own personal journey in life. Her main point is that we all have the choice to choose in the moment that we find ourselves to choose what our reactions going to be, how we are going to respond to whatever it is that life gives us. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Thank you for listening. Dr. Eager, thank you so much for accepting our invitation to be here with us tonight. It is an honor and a privilege to be speaking with you. I read your book over again, and I was blown away the second time reading it. I'm amazed at how many new lessons I discovered reading it the second time. That I, I, It's just amazing how many lessons we can learn t- for our personal life, even though it was such an amazing story. The personal message that I took away was life-changing. And I, like the rabbi said, I encourage each of you to read this book. It's just every page has something. Dr. Eager survived unspeakable horrors and brutality, but rather than let her painful past destroy her, she chose to transform it into a powerful gift, which she uses to help other people heal. She wrote her first, boy, her first book, The Choice, at the age of 90, which became an international bestseller. Dr. Edith has not let her age get in the way of her continued effort to educate, and she doesn't look like she's planning on slowing down anytime soon. So we are very excited to have you here tonight, Dr. Eager. For tonight's lecture
1: and Q&A. Uh, thank you for the wonderful introduction. I don't believe in retirement, you're right, and my second book is going to be published uh, in England in June and in America in September and, uh, and I don't know where it is but it's called The Gift. The
0: Gift. I can't wait to read
1: it. The Gift. I don't know where it is. Okay, What's well, 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 called there. by Simon and Schuster? No. <laughs> so I, I am so happy because Habad to me, is uh, the most beautiful people who live their lives and accepting everyone. See, after two beautiful girls. My son was born, and my husband was so happy that he's going to carry the Eager name. It's RMI Akiba Eager, very famous. And, uh, and I'm very proud to be here as a Jew because one thing I know that never in the history of mankind such a scientific and systematic annihilation of people existed. So it's not comparable, even though unfortunately, there is genocide as we speak. So it's very important for me to carry the word that our ancestors didn't have it as easy as we do. And you know what? They never gave up. And that's the blood I carry and that's what I owe to my parents, to do everything in my power, that your children, grandchildren, I have six great-grandsons, As my best revenge to Hitler. Nine of uh, yes. Uh, that, uh, that I will never experience what I did. So I owe it to my parents to, to know that the most beautiful gift of God is a gift of memory. And I want to be sure that my parents and grandparents didn't die in vain. Well,
2: I think you're doing You're absolutely doing their memory justice, um, not only by all the talks and lectures that you give, but your book is one of the most profound uh, books um, that I've read on the Holocaust and I've read many and many, many people agree with me. And clearly it being on the New York Times bestseller list means that many in the world agree. Now, Uh, Unfortunately, not everyone who's on this Zoom meeting, there's nearly 150 people at this moment, um, has read your book. In fact, most have not yet read your book, but by the time the night is done, they will certainly be convinced. But can you give us, and take as much time as you need, can you give us a little bit of a background of, or uh, you can't summarize your book, but give us a few minutes, um, you know, taking us to life before the war, what was going on in your life that will get us into the story of your book?
1: Yes, I'm gonna to try to be as short as I could because many people asked me to write a book for many, many years and I would say, I have nothing to say, I have nothing to say. And then all of a sudden I realized that I have a lot to say. And I'm glad that I wrote the book because when I go to my great-grandchildren's home and my book is in the living room, to me, That's the biggest gift that I could ever give them. And let them know that no matter what happens, no matter who does what, we have a choice as we do today. We were not prepared for this. I was not prepared for Auschwitz. My parents had tickets to come to America and they never even realized what was going to come. So i like to really emphasize today, uh, especially I, uh, at the end of May, I talked about uh, uh, survivor's guilt. And I think it's very important to recognize that the guilt is in the past. And there is one thing we cannot change is the past. So what we want to do with guilt and say something like, if I knew then what I know now, I really could have done things differently. But with the information we had, I hope that forgiveness will give you the ultimate freedom so you can be free from the concentration camp that we really create in our own minds, and instead of saying, why me, say, what now? Because the only thing I can be in control of is you and I right here, right now. I live in the present. I can only touch you now, but I never forget the past. I don't overcome it. I'm reminded almost daily, especially when I go to Costco and I see the world wires. So it's not overcoming, it's coming to terms with it. That I go through the valley of the shadow of death, but I don't get stuck in there. I don't get ever, ever giving the Nazis another inch. I like to live a full life And I knew that God put me here for a purpose. I was very, very suicidal after I was liberated because I woke up in the morning and I didn't say what. I said, what for? I had no meaning in life and purpose in my existence. And I knew that God has told me if I die now, I will be really not not a, a person who is really giving a chance to life. And thank God, I'm Dr. Edith Eager today. And I talk to the young people because they are the future. And I want to be a good role model to them that they don't yes. smoke what in their teenage years. You know, I, I, I don't preach, but I teach. And when you're in your 90s, you can get away with every, everything. Yes that so, so was wounded. Let's, let's see if we can bring the
2: conversation right to the beginning of your book. You talk about the last Passover Seder that you were at. Um, you, that, that, that was the last night you spent at home before, um, before everything went
1: crazy. So
2: tell, tell us it a little was, bit about that.
1: It was Passover and my father got up and kissed us on our heads. And the following morning, we were picked up. Five o'clock in the morning, knock on our doors and uh, took us in a brick factory in a city of Kasha, KSSA, Hungary. When I met, when I met Ali Wiesel, I would very much like to uh, double check because he, and I thought we were on the same transport, going to Auschwitz, May 1944. But we didn't know what was going to happen. And my Magda told me, we don't know where we're going, honey. Just remember, no one can take away from me what you put here in your own mind. See, I was born into a very talented family. My sister Magda played the piano, my sister was a child prodigy in violin, and my parents really wanted to have a son, and I came along. And I think that God put me in a family because I was very much alone, and I think God helped me to look at life more from inside out rather than waiting something from outside to come. And my mother took me to a ballet school and my ballet master was Jewish. And he picked me up and he said, all the ecstasy comes from inside out. And I didn't even know what the word meant, ecstasy. But when I was in Auschwitz, that really guided me that God has put me there. So you can somehow learn that if you were depending on other people to come, and that's a good definition of a victim, when you're waiting for someone else to come and liberate you. And that's what I like to really say today, that the Chabad is so very much invested and accepting everyone. Because after two beautiful girls, when my son was born, He didn't develop the same way as my girls. He didn't get up, he didn't walk. And when he was four years old, I was told to prepare my son to go to a school for retarded children, that was 1960. And I asked where do I get a second opinion? America is a country of second opinion. And I was in Baltimore, Maryland, and a wonderful neurologist took my son A week later, he said, your son is not retarded. He's going to be what you make of him. And I'm shaking there. And he said, he's going to need speech therapy, occupational therapy. And how much do I owe you? $10. And I went home. I dropped out of school. And I took my son to the CP clinic. And guess what? My son, John, graduated as a top 10 students from the University of Texas. So that's what I like to bring. I like to bring that chutzpah, that way that you never, ever give up. And if you can't get in the front door, I'm gonna try the side window. And if that doesn't work, I'll go to the chimney. That you don't give up ever. And we Jewish people suffered so much, and yet, and yet, we had the Holocaust, we have a state of Israel, and we are here today to celebrate every moment. And that's why- That
2: point that you just Uh, mentioned is very incredible because that's a very foundational principle in Chabad philosophy. Uh, It's called L'Chadchila River, which means one way or another, we're gonna get this thing done, and clearly you've
1: done that. Exactly, and it's temporary. It's not permanent and we can survive it. So sometimes people say time heals, and I don't think time heals. It's what you do with the time. And I'm hoping that this time is going to be spent by families coming closer together, that they learn to negotiate, they learn to compromise, they learn to cooperate, not compete or dominate, because in Auschwitz, had to have a family of inmates. Because if you were only for the me, 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 you didn't make it. My sister was hungry. So I ate the soup at night, and then I saved the bread. And the following day, I told my sister that really, I don't have any use for this bread. And, and then gave it to her. All we had was each other then, and all we have is each other now.
0: That's such a good point. It, it reminds me of the part in the book where um, you actually, can, if you could talk about that, where you, you actually danced for Dr. Mengele. Um, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that experience?
1: Uh, I met Dr. Mengele um, when he came uh, to separate us. My sister and I, hold, holding our mother, And he asked the question, is she your mother or is she your sister? And I never forgave myself by saying she's my mother. So he grabbed my mother and told her to go. And I followed my mom. And he came and he grabbed me and said, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower and promptly threw me on the other side, which meant life. So when we were in Birkenau, one of the inmates who met me, one of the Kapos, um, took my earrings out and I was bleeding. And I said, by the way, when will I see my mother? And she pointed at the chimney and told me, you better talk about her in past tense, she's burning there, And my sister hugged me and said, the spirit never dies. That's how I entered Auschwitz. And then my sister and I were completely shaved. And I had a choice then, as you have a choice now, because my mom, my, my sister asked me, how do I look? Hungarian women pretty vain and I had a choice as you have the choice now whether you pay attention what you lost or what you still have and I remember saying Magda you have beautiful eyes and I didn't see it when you had your hair all over the place so really there is a gift in everything and in Auschwitz we had to learn very quickly very, very quickly how to really form a family. So when Dr. Mengele came in and wanted uh, to be entertained, the girls immediately threw me in front of him because I always entertained the whole Jewish community. And in fact, when the president came, I was dancing the chardash. So I ended up dancing for Dr. Mengele. And I was so scared that I may be the next one to go to the gas chamber. And I began to pray, not for me. And when I was finished, he gave me a piece of bread. Now, I had a choice to grab that piece of bread. But instead, I was on the top floor, the third one. I shared the bread with the girls. And that's what it took. To transcend the me, 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 and commit ourselves to each other. I stood in line in Auschwitz, and I didn't get my tattoo, and I was told, I'm going to the gas chamber, they don't want to waste the ink on me. And then I saw that my sister was in one pile, I was in another. So I started to entertain the guard, and then we were together leaving auschwitz and became slave laborers and i ended up in mauthausen and in mauthausen i knew we were going to die because all i saw was dead bodies and pieces of uh, a body and then they changed their minds and i survived what is called today the death march if you stopped you were shot right away And I was about to stop, and when you stopped, you were shut and you fell into this ditch. I revisited that place as well, and the girls that I shared the bread with came, and they formed a chair with their arms, and they carried me so I wouldn't die. Isn't that amazing? And that's what the Chabad is doing. (laughs) That's what you beautiful Chabad people are doing. And I worship and I truly want to thank you for taking care of my son and many, 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 many sons as well. So my son goes to Washington and fights for the rights of the disabled. He's also blind. And uh, so I'd like to thank you for that. One of the things happened in Gunskirchen was cannibalism that people unfortunately, reach for other people's flesh. And I remember I looked at God and God told me, why don't you just look down and I hope you get to see the sound of music. Because I was in Austria, I was in Gunzkirchen, and when people tell me, I can't, I run to the blackboard and I put, I can't, equals I'm helpless, and then I take the apostrophe and the T, I can. Why? Because I think I can. But I think I will create myself. So that's why it's so important to study the brain, which I'm not going to lecture to you. But I, I want to tell you that to be a survivor is to be able to give up the need for everybody's approval. And I hope you make that choice tonight, that not everybody is going to to want to be with you. If I tell you I like to get to know you, and I hope you like to get to know me too, and you tell me I don't want to get to know you, that doesn't mean I was rejected, because rejection is just a word that people make up when you don't get what you want. So give up give up uh, your expectations that everybody is supposed to love you. I like to be a realist, but not an idealist. And in Auschwitz, I would ask everyone, everyone, tell me about my eyes and tell me about my hands, because my boyfriend and I were dedicated Zionists, and we were going to go to Palestine. We had our own book club. We were very serious at our young age. That how we going to really join the people in Palestine. Unfortunately, he was shot a day before liberation. And uh,
0: Um, Dr. Eger,
1: um,
0: I have a question for you. You're you're clearly a student of Dr. Viktor Frankl, and um, your book is all about how we can choose one's attitude in any given circumstance, which is something that Dr. Frankel emphasizes in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Can you share your experience with Viktor Frankel, your personal experience with him with us?
1: I was at a university that someone handed me a book, Man's Search for Meaning. And I took it home and I studied to read it. And I don't know if you ever had a book that for one page you wanted to write 10 more pages. I think he was the person who gave me the words, how to express where I was and what happened, because I am part of the silence, of the people who didn't say anything, which wasn't really very good for us to do, but I didn't tell anyone I was in Auschwitz close to 20 years. So I wrote a very, very, little article, Viktor Frankl and me, little me, and someone sent it to him to Vienna. It was published, and he wanted to meet me in San Diego. He was a professor at the International University, and that's how I met Viktor Frankl, and uh, I became a logotherapist. I'm a diplomat in logotherapy. I did a keynote address for his 90th birthday. And so without Viktor Frankl, I wouldn't be where I am. But I was 16 in Auschwitz, and he was in his 30s already a medical doctor. And yet we both used the same skills how we closed our eyes. And he said, I close my eyes and I imagine that I'm going to lecture at the Viennese lecture hall about the psychology of the concentration camp. And you're going to see a new book now, and I'm going to write. They asked me to write something. But I was a 16-year-old in love, you see. So we come from a different time in our lives. But I also closed my eyes when I danced for Dr. Mengele and I pretended that the music was Tchaikovsky, and I was dancing the Romeo and Juliet at the Budapest Opera house. And today when a woman comes to me and tells me I was sexually touched and I don't want to tell you because you were in Auschwitz, and I tell that person, yes, I was in Auschwitz, and I knew the enemy, and you didn't. You know, So don't try to compare because suffering is feeling and when we suffer, we become stronger inside and that's what I bring you today, that this is temporary.
2: You know, Dr. Eger, so what you just said now is so profound, of course, so painful. Um, you actually talk about this in your book. You know, you talk about that there's no hierarchy in pain and you give an example of a Patient that came to you, a wealthy woman whose Cadillac came in the wrong color, and yeah. and you actually validate her and you say her pain is real to her, but how could that be? How can we compare that pain to someone who has
1: actual pain
2: and real challenges and real suffering?
1: Well, you know, you don't treat people as they are. You treat them as they were, the way they could be. So, you know, you you treat pers- the person that person the way they are capable of becoming a mensch. So I like to treat people with respect. I don't use any cussing words. I I give people my ultimate 100% attention and become a very compassionate listener. And I never say, I know how you feel. That is really false. I don't know how anybody feels, but I know when my daughter came home and she wasn't accepted at the birthday party, it was really to her life and that matter. And what we use, we minimize, we use defense mechanism. And I say, oh, big deal, honey, why don't you come to the kitchen I just baked a seven layer chocolate cake and I'm gonna make you a chocolate milkshake. And that's how I took care of her, the grave. Well, she made it today. She's a brilliant child psychologist and she made it in spite of me. But I think it's very, very important not to say, I know how you feel because we don't know. But we keep their feeling company. So if you tell me that my pinky is hurting and I tell you I just saw a man who doesn't have an arm, now you're gonna feel guilty that you shouldn't feel the way you feel and you end up feeling worse instead of better. So I meet people as they are, but I treat them the way they could be.
2: It's incredible, but it clearly requires a certain amount of compassion on your part, because by comparison, anyone's pain is is far less.
1: That's right, because life is about suffering. And when we suffer, we are called upon to really stretch. Viktor Frankl and I talked about that I'm not a stretch, I'm I'm not a shrink, I'm a stretch that I stretch people's uh, comfort zone, that to move away from black and white, all or nothing mentality, or to be able to look at things from many perspectives. I give you a, a perspective of how you make it in Auschwitz, and look at the guard, that they are more in prison than I am. I created my own world. And even though I was told every day that the only way I will get out of here is as a corpse. And look, I'm here telling you about it. They took my blood. And I asked, why are you taking my blood? And he said to aid the German soldiers so we can win the war and take over the world. And I couldn't yank my arm away But I said to myself, with my blood, you're never going to win the war. And so I created a world inside me that no Nazi could touch. They could throw me in a gas chamber. They could, and they did. They would torture. They would beat. But they could never murder my spirit. And that's what I bring today. I bring you that defiant, that hopefully a woman of strength.
0: That's amazing. I love you. Dr. Igor, you had the unique experience of being married, divorcing, and then choosing to remarry the very same person that you divorced. Can you enlighten us and share some of the lessons you learned that you know all of us listeners can benefit from with our own, you know, building our own happy marriages?
1: My, my husband was a partisan and I met him in a TB hospital. He had TB, I did not. So what happened that uh, I was there a little while and then we began to correspond. When I married my husband, I was hungry. I was lonely. And he brought me Hungarian salami and Swiss cheese. I didn't have any idea who I married. And I became either his mother or his child. And I came to a point when I realized that I got to do something, but it had nothing to do with him. It was me. The second time, we didn't go back. We had a new beginning, a woman to a man. It's not the same thing. People ask me, did you love your husband? What is love? I had no idea. That's why we grieve over not what happened, but what didn't happen, because when my granddaughter asked me to buy her a dress so she can go to a dance, and I came home and out of the blue, I started to cry. And I didn't understand what am I crying about, realizing that I didn't cry because I bought Lindsay a dress so she can go to her dance. I cried because I never went to a dance. So let's not minimize what happened or fight it. We cannot change the past, but I can now recognize that the definition of love is the ability to let go.
2: Would you, say and, that, would you say that the first time you married your husband, it was because you fell to each other and the second time you chose him?
1: Exactly. We, what we did, we married very quickly after the war because we wanted to be normal. But we married people we didn't know. And that's why the children of survivors and the grandchildren of survivors come and talk to me. And they recognized, especially the second generation, that many times instead of emotional support, they got material goods. So we bought them more clothes and more so, so they would look like the other children, that not to be different, which was really We didn't do our own homework because all therapy is grief. Not what happened, but what didn't happen. And that's the work I do. It's a journey when I hold your hand and we go and we revisit the places where you've been. I personally went back to Auschwitz to reclaim my innocence and assign the shame and guilt to the perpetrator. And that's what I do because there is no grieving without feeling. Yeah. And when I teach the medical school, I beg <laughs> not to medicate grief. Right. It's yeah. not clinical depression. Not, uh, we we uh, medicate uh, too quickly.
0: I agree. I have a question to that. In, in addition to forgiving those who um, hurt us, there's also the piece about self-forgiveness, where you stop blaming yourself or feeling responsible for what happened, like for example, in your case, where you held yourself responsible for so many years about your mother. So how do we forgive ourselves for past mistakes and become more self-compassionate without dwelling on the past? How, How does one accomplish this?
1: Guilt is in the past. Body is in the future. So when I'm guilty, as I said before, You want to, hopefully, forgive yourself because if you knew better, you would have done things differently. But at the time, you did the best you could and accept that, that you don't live in guilt because guilt and fear does not really coexist with love. And I think we're born with love. My God is a loving God. I pray in Hungarian every time I drive home. I thank God for bringing me safe home. I am a very grateful survivor and my God is a beautiful guide to me how to really become free, free, of, of the things that I am not a victim, I was victimized. It's not my identity, it's what was done to me. So I think it's very important not to really live life on a daily basis, either in the past or worry about the future because I can only touch you now. I live in the present it doesn't mean I'm forgetting the past or fighting the past. I uh, I call it my cherished wound. Part of me was left in Auschwitz, but not the better part, not the bigger part.
2: I, I so I always
1: that. want to know what's going to happen next. I'm very curious. The curiosity helped me in Auschwitz more than anything else.
2: You have such a joie de vivre, such a joy and and you can see it in in every word that you say so I'm a rabbi so you'll, for, you'll forgive me for the next question but you reference God many many times and I know in your interview with Oprah you know you said she asked you you know how is it that you didn't lose God and you answered quite the opposite you found God in the camps can, can you talk more about this you know I'm not gonna ask you if you're religious but tell us what God means to you and how that helped you
1: I think God is the ultimate everything because I am human and I make mistakes and I'm fallible and and I accept that. So I do what is humanly possible and then hand it over in God. I talk to God every day on the the death march, every day. I didn't know how long we're gonna be here, but my God is... uh, Is love and joy, and most of all, the ultimate freedom that gives us to surrender that we're limited. We're not limitless. Not limitless. I still go dancing, I still do the high kick, but that's not the same the way I used to do it. I do it halfway which is better than no way at all. And so I think it's very good to grow older and wiser, but not old and senile, because if you don't use it, you lose it. And the way you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you tell yourself, I love me, that's going to be a wonderful way to start the day, because self-love is self-care. It's not. Narcissistic, selfish people don't like themselves. Narcissistic people don't like themselves. So, you know, I do everything in my power to also do what's humanly possible and then hand it over to the God that is the free spirit and God is love and God is joy in my book.
2: Yeah. Dr. Eger, yeah. let Let me ask you a question. You know, the the name of your book tells you obviously the premise of the book and, and, you know, and uh, Essentially, the idea is that everyone has a choice and they have to make that choice again and again. My question for you is, do you believe that, you know, some people clearly have a, a, A greater ability to tap into that energy as you did. Do you believe that every person has the ability to choose and choose life? Um, or is it only if you have that natural gift? In other words, if someone is not inclined that way, can they, can they learn the art of making the correct choice? Is there an art to it? Or is it just, you either have it or you don't?
0: And to add to that, like is that some, is, are there tips and tools that you can give for people that are listening that say, I'm not naturally wired that way, that's not who I am?
1: I tell you what you are. You're a human being. Period. And that means you're limited. You're not limitless. But within that limited capacity, you're always faced with the choice whether you're going to express, because the opposite of depression is expression. What comes out of your body doesn't make you ill, what stays in there does. So I think the best four letter word I can think of is to risk and risk and tell someone you would like to get to know them. Tell them what you would like, learn to negotiate and compromise rather than my way or no way. Some people just look out what's best for them and other people look what's best for all of us. And I think we're born with love, we're born with joy, and we learn to hate. We're not born with hate, we learn it, we learn it. And that policeman who kept his his knee on, on someone else's his, his neck uh, wasn't born that way. And I think it's very good for us to acknowledge that there's a Hitler in every one of us and there is love and joy as well. And look at the polarities. One of my mentors was Abraham Maslow, and I very much believe in the hierarchy of needs. Because in Auschwitz, we talked about nothing but food, and we would fight how much paprika you put in a chicken paprika, and, and we would fight how many seeds I put in my goulash, and that's how we talked about. And he's very right, Abraham has the physiological needs. And then then when you're eating and then you have looked for safety needs and then you look for someone to share it with, the love needs, you know. And then, of course, the self-esteem and self-actualization. So the self-actualized person is a citizen of the world. And I like to promote a world where we hold hand in hand and empower each other with our differences. So we have a knowledgeable leader in a home, not a dictator. There is no punishment, there is only consequence. So I teach a lot of assertiveness. Assertive people choose for themselves. Non-assertive people allow other people to choose for you, and aggressive people choose for others so you as the rabbi you know you show up and it's already in your face in your eyes that you're smiling with you and you're welcoming me and i want to come back to you and i'm going to sit at your feet because you are not smart you're wise so i hope to be wise at this time in my life at 92
0: no,
1: the second um, book is I, The Gift. And you tell the, us
0: a little bit about that book? What is, um, what is this the book? Gift. What is the Gift. What are you,
1: what is the, you know, main theme? You're gonna love The Gift. You're gonna love The Gift because it's full of how-tos. It's very practical.
0: I love that. I'm very so excited.
1: Practical.
0: You know, I have a and, question for you, uh, Dr. Eager. During, right now, we're all going through this pandemic, and um, many, many people, I think everyone, is dealing with lots of stress, anxiety even those that are naturally calm um, people are struggling with anxious feelings and sometimes a few times a day some people are struggling just to stay in the moment do you have any tips that you can share being somebody who went through auschwitz and survived um, share with us some, some tips that people can use for their day-to-day life currently with not knowing what the next day brings, not knowing when this will end, not knowing where, what tomorrow brings. What can you share with them right now?
1: There is a difference between stress and distress. And stress is fine where you are and how to pick an arrow that you're going to follow and have goals and what you're focusing on. But distress is when you don't know what's going to happen next. So when we took a shower, we didn't know whether water or gas is going to come out. And that's why people are now so upset, because there is no guarantee. There is no certainty. There is probability. Right. That you take this time out to regroup and see what you're holding on to, and what are you willing to let go of, how to switch in your car, you're switching gears, but then that means you have to release the clutch. You can't have it both ways, and this is a time out period that you're pregnant, and you want to give birth to the you that was meant to be free free, free from the prison of your own mind, and see what you can do to become the best parent to you. And Jewish people talk to themselves, is this good for me? Is this going to give me five minutes of pleasure and then God knows how many years of pain? I think it's wonderful to pay attention what you're paying attention to because any behavior you pay attention to, you reinforce that behavior. So if you want to lose weight and I tell you what to do and you keep coming back and tell me there is no way you are losing weight because you're pigging out on this and you're pigging out on that, you're never going to lose weight because none of the positive thinking does any good others is followed with a positive action. So people say, I believe, I believe, I'm not interested in that. I wanna know what kind of life you lead. Show me, show me. See, I I really make a difference between stress and distress.
2: I'm gonna have to set up a private session with you to talk about the whole weight and food issue when we're done. (laughs) We'll we'll, uh, spare everyone from that. Okay, so, so you're basically saying though, the biggest thing that people are struggling with during this pandemic is that it's highlighting the uncertainty that's always been there, we just didn't have to look it in the eye and now we do.
1: And, and get together and learn how to make rules in a family because if you have no rules, you have chaos. America has a constitution, write a constitution for your family, that every behavior has a price tag attached. There is no freedom without responsibility. I teach five-year-olds how to fold up their jeans and put it in the drawer. It has to be age-appropriate, that children are many times sitting in a back seat and they mess around and the parents are driving. And then I ask in their teenage years, do you want to be driven, or do you want to be a driver? That means you cannot play the adult game with baby rules. Okay. That every decision you make is going to be a price attached. So that's how I do. I will teach people to negotiate, to compromise, and make rules in a family and also discuss the consequences that the children are not passengers in this family.
2: Right. Dr. Children- you know, we're running out of time. I wanna um, ask one more question and then we'll go to some of the questions that people put in the chat box. Um, you know, Given the riots and the race issues and you mentioned before about the police, who made that choice? You said everyone has a Hitler and everyone has a beautiful person inside of themselves. Um, I know you mentioned about one of your patients who was part of the, the Koresh group and something that he said. Can you share that story with us briefly?
1: Well, you know, he gave up all his freedom to that narcissistic guy called David Koresh. And, uh, and uh, they taught him how to be a bully and how to kick into someone because he was already in the bottom of that totem pole. And he told me, The first thing, America needs to be white again. I'm gonna kill all the Jews, all the using the N-word, all the Mexicans and all the chinkos. Now, if I would have reacted, I would have dragged him to the corner and probably shake him up and step on him. But I am convinced that people don't come to me, they're sent to me, and the most obnoxious person is my best teacher. So I got myself together, I talked to God, and God told me to find the bigot in me. And I told God, it's impossible, I'm not a bigot. I marched with Martin Luther King. I was there in Washington, and, the, and God said, find the bigot in you, and not until I created a good atmosphere, telling him that with me he can feel any feelings without the fear of being judged, and I said, tell me more. Because love is time, T-I-M-E, time. And time doesn't hear, it's what you do with the time. And I'm hoping that this is temporary, and I'm hoping that families are going to make some rules, write it down, and learn how to get rid of punishment and practice consequences. Mm. Of course, it has to be age appropriate. Absolutely. You don't say mm-hmm. that to the two year old. The book to buy is actually written by two Jewish women How to Talk to Kids So They Would Listen, and How to Listen So They Would Talk. And the second book would be uh, um, children, Siblings Without Rivalry. Mm. Yes. Those two books oh, are oh, lyric-
0: Great, they're excellent books. Um, before, I interrupted you, but you started to mention there was a third book um,
1: that you're working on. What was on the Recipes. On the recipes. That's my it. daughter and I, I'm going to write recipes. I am just a good cook, but my daughter is a gourmet. Ah. Like she makes cream cheese omelet with caviar for breakfast. I don't do that, you know? Uh-huh. I make the broadcast, I make this uh, I am I, um, I'm a good cook, but uh, that's what my daughter and I
0: very excited. Uh, um, there's some questions from the audience. Oh, I'm not sure what that means. That's
1: time.
0: Is your timer? Um, I don't know if anybody else hears that noise. Do you hear that noise? Yes. It'll end in a moment, I think.
2: I think it's. That's from. Yes. Do you have time for
0: questions, Dr. Eager? Pardon me? Do you have a few moments for a few more questions?
1: Yes, please.
0: Okay. Um,
2: These are questions from the the audience. audience. They wrote it in the chat box. So we're just going to ask you a few of the questions that they posed.
0: Okay. So one of the questions that Cheryl asked was um, why didn't you um, talk about Auschwitz for twenty years. What was holding you back from sharing that with the world?
1: Because I wanted to be a Yankee Doodle Dandy. I didn't want to be different. I I thought I was weird, and that's why I didn't want the children to to suffer. That was not a good thing to do. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was really coming into when I came to America, and I worked in a factory, and I went to the bathroom, and one of them said colored, And I realized, oh, oh, oh. Where is the democracy I came to? Mm.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Makes sense. A question. Um,
1: I won't do that today, obviously. I won't do that. Oh, clearly. And my children grew up okay.
0: Yes, of course. Um, so, mean. a question that another person asked was, how do you release, in general, how does one release trauma? Is it mostly mind work, or is it just mainly acceptance and accepting of the, of the, of the past the trauma?
2: Both mind work.
0: Or is it both mind work?
1: Uh, life is filled with suffering, it's uh, accepting that if you look at your birth certificate, it doesn't say life is easy. There is no guarantee. There is no certainty. There is probability. So there are your genes. I cannot change that. There is the an environment. And I take the third, how you respond to the other two.
0: Yeah.
1: You change what you can, and that's what they say. When you go to an AA meeting, God give me uh, to change what I cannot change, to which I add, namely, other people. You cannot change other people or teach anything to other people unless they are willing to learn. And change what you can change, to which I add, namely, yourself. Okay, how do you you deal with people...
2: H- How do you deal with Holocaust deniers? Like some people will say, in your case, I believe you ultimately did not get a tattoo, correct? So they'll say you weren't there, it never really happened. How do you deal with Holocaust deniers?
1: I, I would never deny someone else's truth. Ahmad Dijidad said the Holocaust didn't exist. And if someone tells you that, I'm going to tell you that Ahmad Dijidad, chances are, did not read Plato. See, my mother told me, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. <laughs> so, that's very true. So I became a very erudite teenager, and I studied the interpretation of dreams by Freud. But you see, it's very, very important to acknowledge that Plato said you have to think of a lie. It has to be a big one, and you keep repeating and repeating until people believe it and there was a guy, uh, Max Weber, a sociologist, who wrote Capitalism and the Protestant Ethics and refers to the Jewish people as a pariah. So you have to give them a name. You, did, you don't kill people, you kill kikes and gooks. You, you make them subhuman, and then you think you're doing a favor to the world. Right. And then people believed Hitler. That the Jews are cancer to society, and today Germany and tomorrow the whole world. So if I would have been born in Vienna, God knows, children are very impressionable, and if someone would tell me heute Deutschland on morgen die ganze Welt, I think I think I may have been a very enthusiastic Hitler youth. I don't know. I don't know, all I know, that I went to a Jewish school and when I came out, children were spitting at me and called me a Christ killer. I had no idea that Christ was a poor Jewish boy who became a prophet and he died as a Jew. I never ever knew anything like that. And so I think it's very important to question authority and not blindly adhering to authority. And fascism is really, unfortunately, growing. And I'm very, very concerned to be as well as I can, alive as I can be, to prevent anything to happen well, to anybody.
0: You tell us a little bit about um, your sisters? Um... Um, what they
1: did this one, Magda is alive and well.
0: Oh, Baruch Hashan, okay. Magda is
1: alive and well. Wow. And uh, when I was told, telling her I want to go back to Auschwitz, she told me I'm an idiot. <laughs> so we have a very different way of, of reacting. And uh, Clara was already in the camp in Budapest, and her Christian professor smuggled her out Put on some uniform and hit her until the end of the war. And my sister became a concert violinist and joined the symphony in Sydney, Australia. Wow. And she died a few years ago of Alzheimer's. So Magda is still alive and well. She was a brilliant bridge player with Omar Sharif and the brilliant mind and she is very brilliant too. She's the only one I speak Hungarian with, Magda.
2: You know, you talk about your um, disagreement with your sister about going back to Auschwitz. You know, I'm not a psychologist, I won't pretend that I am one, but that sounds like a little bit like exposure therapy. Um, To me, do you believe that you gotta look at your problems in the face? Um, I I mean, you kind of mentioned before that you think we over-medicate, You know, it sounds like you have a a theory that um, follows through and is your consistent theory in psychology and in
1: life. I had problems with anger. So I went to a therapist and I asked the therapist to sit on me and not allow me to get up until I was able to do that. And that's why I didn't really do more than that and decided I got to go back to that lion's den and look at the lion in the face and reclaim my innocence. And give myself permission to forgive myself. (coughs) So when I came out, I had a Blue America passport in my pocket and I saw a man in a uniform and I thought it was the Nazi. And that's when I realized that I will not allow myself to really just not let go of the part in me, and and there is a catchy word, permission, to give myself permission to be able to realize what am I holding on to and what am I willing to let go of. I give up my need for approval of other people. I give up my need to please everybody, but most of all, I ask people to get in touch with their perfectionism. My granddaughter was a perfectionist, and I went to her school and the teacher called her my little caboose. And she thought that she cannot really cut the mustard in that class, and she was ready to to get out of that class. And I talked to her about Auschwitz that a teacher doesn't have any right to label her. I don't like labels. I don't pathologize, I demetologize. There are no good babies and anything. Anyway, I talked to Lindsay about not to get out of the class and she went back to the class and when it was time to apply for colleges, she wrote her autobiography And you know what was the title? When the caboose became an engine. Mm. And she graduated with honors at Princeton and wrote her thesis on her grandma and her sister. She got a PhD at UCLA and now she's professor of psychology um, at the university. So you see, uh, I put money aside when I came to America when my little girl was two years old, so I can send my child to college. I think we Jewish people care a great deal about educating, not what to think, but how to think, and question authority, not blindly adhering to authority. So you rabbis are really sometimes being asked questions and then you just Jewish. You answer a question with a question. I wondered about that too. What do you think? Just put the ball right back. Uh, give it, give it back. But yeah. don't argue, because there is no truth. It's my truth and your truth.
0: I love
2: that. I love that. Right, so, Doctor, we're, we're kind of out of time, and we want to respect uh, um, the agreement. So we've gone long. I'm gonna. Start to close us down. Um, I encourage everyone to uh, buy Dr. Eager's book because it's truly, truly transformative. We're looking forward to the next book. Um, you mentioned Chabad and your connection to Chabad a few times. You know um, the program that you refer to for your son is probably called the Friendship Circle, which is a, 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 a one of the branches within the Chabad movement. They have you know locations all around the world. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think I'm speaking to the Habad in London, either tomorrow or the next day. So, you know, we, we, we get around, we find each other, and that's, that's what I'm hoping, that we're spreading the word, that all we have is each other. And that's why we hope that this time together gave us more passion, more joy, and more willingness to try something today that you have previously avoided. Well, thank I you. I love
0: that, I love that. So we should try to do something today that we previously avoided. What a great yeah. way to end um, this um, session. Thank
1: you very much, if we, Shalom.
0: Yes, if we keep on working on ourselves and bettering ourselves and um, risk taking risks and um, trying to do things that are uncomfortable, getting ourselves uncomfortable. Ch- Ch- Ch-
2: challenge every, everything, challenge yes. everything, I love it.
0: We really enjoyed having you here tonight. On behalf of Chabad of Peabody and the YJP Boston, we thank you for your time. Um, and Hello. thank you again for the sponsorship from the Latham Foundation and from Harriet and David Maldo. Thank you all for being here this evening. I hope this conversation has changed us for the better. I know it has for me. Again, Dr. Eager, it's a privilege and an honor to have spent time with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm gonna unmute all so everyone can clap for you because I know that um, they want to do that. So how do we
1: do that? Let's um, unmute everyone. One thing I like to say, that God only made one of you. Never ever anybody in a million years was anyone just like you. So I hope you're going to really celebrate your one of a kind, authentic, beautiful child of God, that's you.
0: You can all unmute yourself, and we can all give you a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you,
1: thank you.